welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 16 on February 10th, 2017, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today's main topic is open source and what that means for intellectual property rights. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup and research updates. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at low underscore techno, like us on Facebook, and find us on Instagram, as well as check out our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you can find both of our podcasts. We're declaring this coming week Open Source Week, because why not? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Of course, we have a good reason to celebrate this treasure trove of media and mindset. Many of you have probably heard of open source software, but let's take a look at where this term came from. Open source came about in the early days of modern computing because something beyond the designation of free or public domain was needed, and these were the primary designations in the early time of software and software distribution. We're talking probably in the 70s and 80s. First, uh, let's talk about public domain. Public domain means anybody can use it to create whatever they want, and they can even create something that's patentable or something that can go under copyright. Uh, For example, Shakespeare's plays are all under public domain because they're so old. However, if you were to take and create a film out of a Shakespeare play, or you translated it into another language, that could be put under copyright because it's your work. This is why we can't download uh, pirated versions of the movie Hamlet and claim that Shakespeare's play is in the public domain. That's true, but the actual movie production is not. Uh, Over time, it will become public domain, but that's going to be variable depending on where you live. Now, getting back to software, originally people wanted to call it the free software movement. And this means free in the sense of freedom, as in free speech. It doesn't mean free beer. Essentially, you could still buy software, but once you bought it, it was yours, and you could do with it what you wanted. Today, we still have a vestige of free software, and this is often called freeware or shareware, but a lot of these are still under copyright, so while you have free use of the product, you don't have free reign to do what you want with it. Uh, That means going in and tinkering with the code. Open source, on the other hand, is what's called copyleft, which is kind of a play on words and opposite of the idea of copyright. It has one restriction that does not apply to public domain items. Remember, public domain items, you can do with them what you will. You can make patentable or copyright derivatives of them. With open source or copyleft, you must maintain the same open source license. Essentially, you're free to use it, as long as you agree not to restrict others' use of what you make. Now, the archetype of the copyleft license is the GNU Public License, or GPL. But to learn about that, we have to introduce its author, Richard Stallman. And much of this story is told in the documentary film Revolution OS, which you can find on YouTube or other internet video libraries. Richard Stallman was born in 1953 in New York. He went to Harvard for undergrad and then started graduate school just down Mass Ave at MIT. He had been working with computers from a very young age, and he soon dropped out of the grad program to work for MIT's AI laboratory. He became one of the earliest prominent hackers. And now this is a time before uh, the widespread nature of the internet, 
They were dealing with ARPANET, which was the precursor to the internet. They were, uh, hacks at that time were really more customization of programs to meet your needs. Um, by the early 1980s, software began to come out that restricted the ability of users to tinker with the code that made the program run, and this really bothered Stillman. And for example, and I'm quoting uh, from Wikipedia, which is a open source uh, encyclopedia that I'm going to be talking about in a blog post this coming week, and I know it rankles people to use Wikipedia as a reference material, but read that blog post and have a look at why I'm using Wikipedia specifically. In the 1980s, Stallman and some other hackers at the AI lab, this is all a quote, were refused access to the source code for the software of a newly installed laser printer, the Xerox 9700. Stallman had modified the software for the lab's previous laser printer, a XGP Zero Graphic Printer, so it electronically messaged a user when the person's job was printed and would message all logged in users waiting for print jobs if the printer was jammed. Not being able to add these features to the new printer was a major inconvenience as the printer was on a different floor for most of the users. This convinced Stallman of people's need to be able to freely modify the software they use. And that is an anecdote out of Free as in Freedom, Richard Stallman's Crusade for Free Software, a 2002 book by Sam Williams. That just goes to illustrate what Stallman meant by freedom. Not necessarily freedom as in cost-free, but freedom to, once you own it, to be able to make that program work the way you want it to work by messing with the source code or the, the guts of the computer program. Another significant happening was the restriction of Unix. So let's dive down another tangential rabbit hole and talk about that. Unix was an operating system developed by AT&T which was hit by an antitrust lawsuit in the mid-1970s. As a result, AT&T had to give a free license to anybody who asked for one to use Unix on their systems. In 1982, when AT&T was broken up, Unix went with Bell Labs, which made it a pay-for-use system. So basically, this had been freeware or shareware, and then once it was spun off, it became proprietary again, and one had to pay to use what had been previously free. By this time, Unix was rapidly becoming the operating system of choice for all kinds of hardware because it was so versatile. Richard Stallman was unhappy about this change and announced that he would write free replacements for each of the components of the Unix system. He called the new OS GNU, G-N-U, uh, meaning GNU's not Linux, which is a recursive uh, or self-referential uh, acronym. Throughout the 1980s, Stallman and his uh, collaborators worked to create this replacement software and distribute it under the GNU public license, or the GPL. This is a copyleft license, which basically states that anyone is free to use and adapt the software, provided that they keep this license attached and allow other users the same freedom. And here I want to put in a point of clarification. Stallman wasn't against making money working on software. He was simply adamant about the fact that the source code should be kept open for folks to work on later. I can hear you saying, well, how could one make money if the software is free? And that's a good question. And not everybody is skilled enough to adapt software for their unique needs. So a business could hire a programmer to build their system. Additionally, customer support is always needed in complicated systems. And the creator of that software is likely to be the best provider of that service because they know it so well. But wait, that isn't always true, is it? If you've ever had a problem with paid software, such as 
Microsoft, Adobe Macintosh, or really any other proprietary software, you know how frustrating it can be to find good customer service. Richard Stallman points out that this is because they have a monopoly on that software. Plus, they've already made their money by selling it to you, so why would they bother with good customer service, right? Once you buy Microsoft uh, Office, for example, or a Windows operating system, the company has made the majority of its money off of you unless you buy extended customer support. But even then, they've still made most of their money off of selling you the program, so why should they bother to have good customer support? On the other hand, the free market of open source software customer service rewards those providers with better customer service because that's how they make their money. It makes some sort of logical sense. Others might question the quality of the software, and this is probably pretty common. How can it be good if it's done for free? In our free market system, it seems that everything good must come at a price. But this is not so with open source software for a few different reasons. It kind of violates the general laws of management practices that we operate under often in the US, but the programs that come out are still pretty darn good. And this seeming disconnect is discussed in the book The Cathedral and the Bazaar by Eric Raymond. In essence, Raymond argues that, quote, given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow, end quote. That is, when an individual development team works on a closely held bit of software and release it as a finalized product, they can't foresee all of the bugs. This is the cathedral model, cloistered and done by a small team of experts. On the other hand, the bizarre model, and that's B-A-Z-A-A-R, bizarre as in market, not as in bizarre strange, the bizarre model is collaborative and done in public view. Software is worked on by many hands, and this helps weed out bugs. It includes feedback and frequent updates versus the monolith and central distribution without feedback that we see in the cathedral or proprietary software model. I would also point out that while competition can be good for some aspects of development, it is also wasteful of people's time. Think about two teams trying to develop software to run a toaster. They're both up against the same problems, right? Bread has to go in, it has to be heated for a set amount of time, and then it has to be popped out with the power turned off, right? These are the basic problems of a toaster. Well, if we have these two teams trying to build a toaster, they're up against these same problems, and they're probably going to come to similar solutions, either a time timer or a heat timer, uh, a mechanism to hold the toast, a mechanism to supply the power to the heating elements. These are all going to be the same challenges, and there are only a finite number of solutions that are going to work really well. These two teams are working on redundant problems, and while competition is good in some ways in that the better design is probably going to win out in the market, it's kind of wasteful to build it that way, where we also have the opportunity to have one team or teams that share information working on their models. Open competition is good in some ways, but collaborative open source has its own benefits. So let's get back to GNU and Richard Stallman's team to finish up this story. Remember that GNU was replacing different components of the Unix system one by one. The Unix system and most computer systems are made up of a variety of programs that work together. This is similar to a body that has different organs that each have different jobs. The heart pumps the blood, the kidneys clean the blood, the liver, the lungs, the bladder, all these things have different jobs to do. 
Richard Stallman and his team had been building the different components or the different organs, if you like, of the Unix system to replace this proprietary software with free software. What they hadn't yet built was the equivalent of the central nervous system, the kernel spelled K-E-R-N-E-L. This is the piece of software that allows all the different organs or uh, sub-programs to communicate with one another. They planned to do it, but they were beat to the punch by a Finn named Linus Torvalds, or Linus Torvalds. His kernel was named by one of his friends as a combination of his name, Linus, or Linus, in uh, Swedish or Finnish, and Unix. And this combination of names created Linux. This is the center of the operating system that runs a majority, a large majority, of digital devices and servers today. Even if your device is a Mac or a PC or you're listening on an iPod, almost everything else is running on some adapted version of Linux. This includes internet servers and routers, DVRs, Android phones, and almost all the interconnected devices we like to call the Internet of Things, these are almost all running Linux. Why are they running Linux? Or some people would call it GNU Linux. That's a whole debate I'm not going to get into today. But basically, it's a very adaptable system. You can put it in and have different drivers to run different types of hardware in a much wider variety of computer systems, not just laptops or desktops. You know, everything from programmable thermostats to printers, all these things need different programs to run them, and Linux is just much more flexible in integrating those different types of components, and therefore it is the operating system of choice. Furthermore, Unix, which Linux was kind of grew out of, is very stable. It's much more stable than Windows. Mac also has some relation to Unix, and that's why Mac is often seen as more stable than PC. But that's another story, and we're getting a little too far into the weeds of computer science. Okay, now let's bring this back. Where does all of this open source software meet the Low-Tech Institute? The Institute runs on Linux. We use Linux machines for our computers. We write most of our things on OpenOffice, which is a free open source office program. We use Audacity to record and create our podcast, and that is open source. We use an uh, open source video editor. Everything we do is basically running on open source, not only because we want to save our money and direct that towards our research efforts and all the open source software is free, but we also want to encourage this type of collaboration and showcase that it works really well. Open source has moved beyond computer code and has now been adopted by all kinds of intellectual property. As a broader concept, the Creative Commons has taken on the role of providing licenses for ideas and products. And the Creative Commons is an actual organization that promotes this open type of licensure. Something under Creative Commons license will have a double C in a circle. And this is similar to the single C in a circle that you are apt to find on copyright materials, right? That circle with a C in the middle means copyright. If it has two C's in that circle, it means you should look up its Creative Commons license. Beyond the simple Creative Commons license, there are various restrictions or flavors that can be added to the base license. For example, an attribution license requires that the original author is credited, and a share-alike license requires that derivatives, or things that you make out of that item, also have the same Creative Commons licenses. This is most similar to the open source GPL, 
where if you take a piece of software and you change it around, you have to also release it under the same license. This is exactly the same with the Creative Commons share alike license where if I get an idea from somebody else or I take a piece of artwork or whatever that's in the Creative Commons share alike license, I can change that and put it out, but I have to use the same license. It's almost equivalent. You can further restrict things with the Creative Commons by adding the non-commercial license, meaning those who use the work can't sell what they make. Uh, finally, you could also do the no derivative license, and this is the most restrictive, and it allows sharing the original work with no modifications. For example, if I put this podcast under the no derivative license, you could send it to you know all your friends, you could put it on a listserv, you could distribute it as widely as you want, however you want. However, you couldn't change it, you couldn't modify it, anything like that. Similarly, if I put the uh, non-commercial license on it, you couldn't sell any of those derivatives. These licenses can be combined. For example, this podcast is under the attribution share like license, meaning you can adapt it, modify it, whatever, and then distribute it, but you have to a, give the Low Tech Institute credit for the original production, and you have to distribute it under the same license where you allow other people to work on and adapt what you've made. Others might choose the more restrictive licenses, such as non-commercial, non-derivative, and again, these just allow for the free sharing of unchanged material. The reason we use Creative Commons on all our work is because it is meant to be open and free to use for the public, and we want to stay that way. We could just use the simple Creative Commons or public domain license, but then an unscrupulous character could come along, take our plans, for example, verbatim, and apply for a patent or copyright. Then we'd have to hire a lawyer and go through some expensive fights just to keep the information free to use. If we lost, we, the creators of that material, would have to pay a license to use the ideas, the ideas that we created. So to avoid this, we've added the share-alike license, meaning that if somebody takes our ideas and then does not share any derivatives, he or she is in violation of the distribution license. We also added the attribution license because we want folks to be able to trace their ideas back to us in order that they can find out more. It's not out of ego or saying, oh, we want to be known as the you know, great creators of you know, whatever sorts of information. No. We want it so that people can be linked back to us so they can find out more information and we can then link forward to them as well so we can create a larger communication network. That's really why we do the attribution license. Furthermore, it's, a, it's always a good idea to cite your sources. So you can go to our website and under publications, you can see our plans for a chicken coop and worm bin. More plans are coming. Um, and these and all future ones will be free for you to use, modify, and distribute. If you want to share your derivations, send them to us, and we'll host them on the website with full attributions to you. We're working on a, a research uh, library that we're going to be opening up on the website where you're going to be able to follow links um, and uh, find PDFs of all kinds of useful information, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But again, all this information is either public domain and in the Creative Commons. I think a big part of the drive behind the free software movement and the open source movement is certainly not a driving uh, interest in money. And while, you know, all of us need to earn a living somehow, I think a lot of people are much more open and willing to share what they're able to do uh, than one might generally assume. And while we look for grants and um, member support 
here at the Low Tech Institute, what we produce is supposed to be open and given to the public. That's part of the reason why we're uh, going to be soon applying for uh, nonprofit status because we are in the business of free, open, public education and information. So that's our brief roundup of open source and uh, why you see the Creative Commons crop up so often in our publications and on the podcast. I wanted to go through the ethos behind that and the background just so you had a little more information about why we do that. Now let's move on and take a look at this week in low-tech news. We had a good news story coming out of California. Their rain in many parts of the state are above average for this time of year, which is wonderful. But we continue to see the long-term effects of the multi-year drought that California was experiencing. We see increased subsidence of the San Joaquin Valley and other areas, and this is a result, a direct result, of pumping out a lot of groundwater. Now, real briefly, there are two types of water used for irrigation and human use. There's the surface water. Think of this as your checking account. It's often replenished by rain or melt uh, or rivers, things like that, uh, and you use it on a more of a daily basis and it is constantly being replenished, at least one hopes. Then you have groundwater, and groundwater is more like your savings account. You take water out of the surface and it trickles down and joins other water in an aquifer deep down underground. This is the same way that you'll transfer uh, dollars and cents from your checking account to your savings account. Now, obviously, it doesn't make good sense to take more money out of your savings account than you put in it, or it will decrease in size. But this is exactly what's had to happen in California for the large, very thirsty agricultural sector. People have been drawing groundwater out for years to make up for the lack of surface water. This would be akin to living off of your savings account while you don't have any checking account for whatever reason. In this case, that surface water has been really reduced because of the drought. So what happens when you draw a lot of water out of the ground? The water keeps sediment a little more separated and loose. And when you draw that water out, the sediment compacts. And so when you draw out millions of gallons of water, sediment below the ground starts to subside or uh, shrink down together. As there's less water to take up space, sediment compacts, and therefore we see the actual land surface subsiding or sinking. And that's why a lot of uh, areas in California have begun to sink with problems for infrastructure. If the ground is unstable and uh, collapsing uh, very slowly, this can wreak havoc on built infrastructure, roads, canals, houses, things like that. We also had a number of stories on tiny houses. Uh, the government of Canada's plans for 20 tiny houses from the 1960s is certainly worth a browse, as is the story about the high school class building tiny homes for flood victims. The Permaculture Podcast has a few new episodes this week about growing local education and communities. The Walden Effect blog had a neat way to propagate shiitake mushrooms, and this is using the traditional method. Uh, most mushrooms that grow out of logs today are propagated by drilling a hole and putting a plug in, and that plug has been impregnated with the mycelium that helps grow the mushroom. The old way, apparently, is to stack logs uh, with the top logs already being inoculated with the mycelium and perhaps fruiting already, and then that mycelium grows down into the logs below it. And so by stacking these logs, you're able to pr propagate without having to use the drilled plugs, 
Uh, it's not as prolific, but it certainly is a much easier and simple option and DIY, of course. Um, so check out that on the Walden Effect blog. I do want to point out that we're trying to balance on a tightrope here in terms of the stories we put out. We think about climate change, and I have studied it professionally. Unfortunately, climate change has become a political topic, and as the Institute is apolitical, it puts us in a bind. We do not support any single candidate or position, but we will try and provide relevant facts and data. Additionally, we will post stories about what major political parties are doing in regards to the environment and climate change, and note that when we do so, we are trying to link to news sources that are within a standard deviation of dead center. Reuters, AP, New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, BBC, and flagship news stations, for example. We'll avoid political stories from those outside the center, but we do have an opinion editorial section where we post stories we think will be of interest to our readers. Of course, those are meant to provoke thought and reflection, but they are not meant to reflect the official views of the Institute. So I just wanted to get that out there because the topics we discuss sometimes have political undertones, but we need to maintain our apolitical position. Those are some of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. To see links to these stories we discussed or to send us a news tip, visit the Lowtech website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com, and click on blog. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going, around, going on around the Institute. We're working up a formal proposal for the heating system we discussed in last week's podcast, so have a listen to that if you haven't already. We're building an online library of resources that we're going to put up on the website, I hope, before too long. That's going to have many, many links to PDFs, websites and other resources that uh, I've found useful in planning and working uh, in the various different uh, avenues of housing, clothing, and feeding ourselves without fossil fuels, so I hope you'll find those useful as well. And on the actual real-world front, I've been uh, sewing up some leather choppers from the leather I tanned over the last winter, um, and I hope to have the, the, uh, the choppers or the work mittens done in time for spring when I won't need them. Anyway, that's all we have this week for the uh, Low Tech Podcast, which is put out by the Low Tech Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Tech Recording Room. Our intro music was Leave Well Enough Alone off the album Creative Commons Volume 2 by Dexter Britton. That song is under the Creative Commons share-like and non-commercial license. This podcast is under the Creative Commons attribution and share-like license. And now you know why I say that each week. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and please leave us a rating because it helps boost our audience reach. You can find out more information on the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno, and reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. I'd be happy to have your feedback. Thanks, and take care. Mm-hmm.